everybody and welcome to another episode of words images and worlds on this exciting edition i am talking with author and artist peter cooper peter thank you so much for taking some time on a on a busy friday night uh, <laughs> to talk with me my pleasure and, and we were discussing your impressive mass collection which to folks watching the video they can absolutely enjoy that as well so uh hopefully hopefully there's a, a smile on your face at the end and it's not the the uh was that decaf one that's right above your head there by the end of the conversation i hope anyway <laughs> all right so my first question for you is uh you have this distinctive style you have this wonderful way of looking at the world and representing it uh, what was it about comics and, and visual creating that drew you in? My first interest was entomology. I thought I would be an entomologist, really interested in insects. I think it's just, a, you know, I have a visual, uh, I, I'm not a believer in the word talent, but I do think that, that we all individually have things that draw us. Some people are much more musical. Uh, some people are like math. Um, I definitely use visually oriented and insects were just inc incredibly engaging to me in all aspects of them. Just, you know, the colors, the movement, the shapes, they, they all seemed like fantasy objects and uh, comics had that same thing going on. And it kind of knocked my entomology uh, enthusiasm to one side, not out, but to one side. And uh, when I was about seven, I saw a Thor Jack Kirby Stanley comic and I just completely you know knocked me out and I was uh, super shocked when he dies at the end and then I just thought that's it you know I got very first issue I got and he's already dead and then he came back which was super exciting you know um the you know the dynamics of the art the way the, you know the storytelling everything that was going on the, the you know the color um, and especially with, you know, masterful artists like, you know, Jack Kirby, it just, it, you know, made my blood run faster. And um, I, I, I think that that interest went along and maybe faded a little bit. But then when I was 10, my father, who was a professor, had a sabbatical year and we moved to Israel. And I was uh, I, I was about to be a probably a reasonable reasonably popular semi-mediocre person and when i got to israel i was at the bottom of the food chain got beat up a lot uh the teacher didn't like americans the students absolutely didn't like an interloper outsider and i spent a lot of time in the school hall and i started reading more comics then and i read pretty broadly i was really into um harvey comics richie rich uh, little dot um a lot of um, uh, hot stuff, etc., and um, and then also Batman and what I could get my hands on. And when I got back to the United States, age eleven, um, the only person I could relate to was the other kid who got beat up a lot and who was really into comics. And that was my friend Seth DeBachman, who stayed. I met in first grade. Um, and we stayed friends and we ended up uh, starting a fanzine together when we were 11. And um, 
got really lucky because um, there was some fandom. I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and there was some fandom there. Um, and we saw that there was a comic convention in Detroit. And so in 1970, I went to my first comic book convention and I just was utterly taken by everything about it. You know, Jim Stranko was the big guest along with Bernie Wrightson, who was a, you know, 19 year old, probably brand mm -hmm. new there. It was, you know, it was like early enough in the whole field that all of that was available. And I just, I looked around and, you know, this, this was it as far as I was concerned. And my whole year was devoted to getting a little bit of capital together and uh, trying to not fail all my classes so that I could go to the New York Comic Convention, which I started going to in 1971. And doing a fanzine meant that I could, my Seth and I could interview people. So we were like, one year we interviewed Jack Kirby, we interviewed William Gaines, um, uh, Neil Adams, um, Joe Sinna, anchor on, on Fantastic Four, I uh, met Frazetta. So it was like a, the, the whole swimming in the, in the you know, sea of cartoonists at a point where it was still a really modest scene. Like there was a few thousand people that went to the New York Comic Convention. And then basically all these incredible creators would go there to meet, you know, to hang out with each other. And mm -hmm. you could just walk up to Will Eisner and chat with him or, you know, RV Kurtzman or, you know, you name it, they were all alive and around and, and more than a little available, you know, to say, Hey, you know, Mr. Gaines, a uh, publisher of mad magazine, can I interview? And you sure, let's go upstairs, sit at this little cart table. And I had my little recorder and we published these interviews in the fanzine. And it was just like, you know, there was just so many different things that were introductions and I didn't draw really at all. I had no, no notable skills. I, you know, attempted to uh, copy this and that, but um, in general, um, th there was nothing to indicate that I would end up being a cartoonist. But um, not to, to make a short story long, when I was 15, I just started to lose interest in comics. I was, you know, hitting puberty. I wanted, I was like, girls in comics aren't mixing, you know, like I'm not like winning any contests by by like showing my comic collection. And um, right about that time, uh, I got mono and I was in bed for about a month. And I had just stopped collecting comics where I had been a weekly collector. And the friends that I had that were into comics went out, got all the comics that I had missed, brought them, and I spent that month in bed reading comics. And when I got out of bed, I was like, Dad, I want to be a cartoonist. And he was like, okay, do a drawing a week for me. And I did, I think I did one and then proceeded not to get any further, but my interest was back. And around that, you know, in that similar time, probably around the time I started smoking pot, uh, underground comics, which were around, I mean, I saw Crumb's work at, in 1970 at this, at this um, uh, Detroit Triple Fanfare. Uh, and I immediately was taken with it. It was one of those odd things because it it was outside of the scope of, you know, superheroes that I was into. But there was just that his drawing just grabbed me immediately. And I was coming back from buying comics 
actually this is a roll back a little bit. Um, and I had my comics in my hand and a, and a kid walking by said, oh, oh, I see you have comics. There's a guy over here of some, some comics in that building. Um, his name's Harvey Picar. Um, this was in 1972, I believe. And I went and buzzed the buzzer that said Harvey Picar and said, I understand you have comics. Can I come up? <laughs> and he invited me up. And uh, he wasn't doing American Splendor. He didn't do that until 1976. Um, he showed me some original R. Crumb work. It was a... Uh, a guy peeing into a toilet and you saw his genitals, which I had never seen in cartoons. Mm -hmm. And it just absolutely was like, okay, new world. I was still young. I hadn't even hit puberty. So it was, I was still, it was all revelatory. And Harvey was like extremely nice to me and to Seth. And he looked at our fanzine and he gave us some suggestions. Um, he, I, I uh, we met uh, an artist, Gary Dumb, who worked at a local bookstore, who ended up being one of the main artists on American Splendor. He did work for our fanzine starting in as early as 1970. Um, so is it really, anyway, I don't know if there's something in the water in Cleveland, you know, you know, Siegel and Schuster were there. Yeah, uh, Don, yeah. Don and Maggie Thompson were there. There was um, Crum lived there. Um, and um, uh, Crumb came through town and visited Harvey, and I got to meet him. He did a drawing for our fanzine, did the cover. Um, so there was just a lot of a lot of luck involved, um, and also, uh, but the but the my level of enthusiasm was um, fortunately you know turned into a passion that wasn't quitting at all. Yeah, um, yeah. that was a very long answer to your brief question i i could go on <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the just the interconnected web uh, of folks that you crossed paths with and uh, i just went to my first comic-con last summer i'd never been to a, a convention as this was heroes con in charlotte north carolina and, and it is just this it's fandom. I mean, I don't know what other word to put on it because you get to meet creators. And I spent most of my time uh, going in the artist alley and, you know, seeing just who was there and who would come different days and stuff. Uh, but then you have all of the, the memorabilia around and all of those pieces. The other thing that you mentioned is um, your attraction with entomology and then how perfect that you adapt metamorphosis. Indeed. Yeah. It, um, it, it's funny, you know, I teach also, and I, uh, one of the things I say right off the bat is like, you know, what's your passion? And I'm like, it's, it's a big question really, because, um, a lot of people just haven't identified that. And as somebody who has fortunately has more than one passion, even I even forgot what my passions were. And I forgot how, how important insects were in my my you know as as a passion and i've come around to that and i'll get to this a little later but um i i'm i'm still fascinated by insects and you know that that what i wish upon any any student anybody is to have passions and to be and to be able to identify them and have them as, and i always say like you know if you're into sports which i am totally not oh fine you're into cars you're into horses whatever it may be you know, that if you can identify 
things that, that matter to you like that. That's the kind of thing. And, and ideally a Venn diagram between more than one thing that then becomes, you know, like a hybrid, which is where I'm heading and looking to find more originality in a certain way, you know, that, that to, to bring in different sources so that then you end up arriving at some, someplace like, you know, in my case, comics and insects, good meeting metamorphosis being, you know, an aspect of that. Yeah, but, but then I'm also thinking about the system. I'm thinking about um, the other book you did about Kafka, just thinking about your style and how those pieces come together. Uh, Kafka-esque, I think is what it was called. Kafka-esque is a more recent collection. Also, mm -hmm. I did a book called Ruins, and there's mm -hmm. a huge section in there that's just about the monarch's migration from Canada to Mexico. And that was the kind of the tip of the ice or the tipping point of where I like, oh, wait, I'm so interested in insects. And it was one, one of the parts of the book while I was working on it. I was just like pure joy because it was yeah. comics and insects. And, you know, the combo passion was then become sort of an Uber thing. And I just, um, there's sort of no end to how much I can sustain a work that could go on for, well, years that's on, yeah. on subjects. And, and then you also have Heart of Darkness, which looks very um, charcoal. That's kind of the impression that I get from the pages in it. It has that sort of like, uh, I don't know if you call it washed or how you would describe yeah, it. It was. But, well, it was, yeah. it was um, I used a prism, a black Prismacolor pencil um, for, for the sections of it that are telling the story about the up, up, uh, river trip um, and then sort of real time is in pen and ink digitally uh, toned with grays but then the other part that's telling the story I actually did you know watercolor on it, uh, it was uh, the Prismacolor pencil and then watercolor uh, black you know black and white but watercolor nonetheless um, I find you know I, I have a very fluid style choices and I have now so many different styles to choose from. And I, I feel very fortunate because um, this is something I struggled with a lot over the years because uh, when somebody hires you to do a job, and especially a lot of my work when I was starting out was in illustration, they yeah. anticipate the style. So if I show my work and I show a uh, black and white, uh, like woodcut look, and then I come in with watercolor, they're not going to be pleased. I've managed to, over the years, uh, develop a lot of different styles, including stencils and spray paint, as I did with uh, the system and sticks and stones and uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, my first adaptation. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, and then Scratchboard, which is an approximation of woodcut that I did for the Kafka stories, which seemed very appropriate for a kind of German expressionist reference. And I and I really, you know, that has come quite naturally. It's like, I if I find a, uh, you know, the subject matter dictating what style is appropriate. So with Heart of Darkness, the kind of more sketchbook quality for the tale of going up river and, and you know, what happens on that journey, I was looking towards my sketchbooks, which I, I keep steadily. And that's much more of a, you know, I, I'm using watercolor. I'm, it, that's also a mishmash. And it's one of the ways 
that I created time, uh, usually traveling. I did a lot of traveling over the years uh, to just draw on a sketchbook and not have any commerce involved, not have any art director wondering what style I was going to draw on and see what happened. And I found collage and, uh, you know, when you're traveling, you have all these maps coming in. I had my glue stick and I would glue a piece of a map down or a ticket or something and then draw around that. And that, you know, sort of a, it, it was things that naturally occurred. That's, you know, it's more, it's more arty. And I don't think of myself, you know, in strictly like in fine arts terms, I'm, I've been a commercial artist. That is to say, I do work that I, you know, like tell somebody I'm going to do something and I get paid for it and they tell me what they're going to pay me and, mm -hmm. and not just the fine art, you know, where you create and then hope somebody's interested. Although, you know, I have certainly done plenty of that as well, but I've really tried to have my style be as fluid as it needs to be for whatever it is, you know, let the, let the story that I want to tell dictate what what's an appropriate style and sometimes you know that can just be being more cartoony or being more realistic or you know everything in between i love that that kind of back and forth in um heart of darkness of kind of that ethereal quality because when you travel you're also you're sort of outside of yourself and that nothing is quite permanent because you're not home and so i love that that visual representation of that between the, the present ongoing story and the, the travel kind of aspect of it. No, it's, I mean, that's why one of the things that made, drew me, no pun intended to travel was that quality of, you know, you arrive in a place and, and you're just like a newborn and you're seeing it. An artist that I really love is Saul Steinberg. He did the famous New Yorker cover that was like, uh, you know, fifth Avenue, 10th Avenue and the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and, He's, he's uh, one of those stylists that he just works in oil painting and collage and does uh, um, constructions and whatever. And he's a big traveler also. And he had that quality of looking at a place and then seeing it through these new eyes. And he did that with New York. And he, in many ways, I felt like I was seeing New York through his eyes, like he'd draw like an oil spill on the street was that rainbow color that you get when oil hits water. And he did these little rainbows around. I was just like, Oh yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, the way uh, Andy Warhol walked into a grocery store and just saw it like, wait a minute, there's a, this repetition is a thing. And it's, it's a comment on commerce and capitalism and, you know, like how you can fold those things into it and, and have, you know, conceptual, response to the environment at, at the same time, just observation. And that's a, that's a great segue to the question I had for you about the social and political possibilities in comics. It was sometime over the past few years, I think during the pandemic, I heard you do a talk on that. Um, so I wanted to kind of hat tip that talk, but also give you the chance to, to kind of explore that a little bit for listeners of, you know, sometimes comics are seen as this simple thing but they actually can comment on life and visual arts can comment on life in these really amazingly complex ways. Well, I mean, just for starters, comics are the most complicated art form because it's depend it's demanding that a, you know, quality, if you have all the pieces together, it means you have to be lettering 
designing, drawing, writing. I mean, there aren't, you know, I mean, I, I guess if you're an auteur or filmmaker that you're doing that, if you're holding the camera as well, uh, if you're doing a play and, you know, you're directing actors, but you're creating the, the performers, let's say, if you're doing, you know, a story. And if, if you are an auteur and you do all the pieces of it, you're really having to juggle a tremendous amount of, of, of different uh, um, abilities and, and uh, disciplines. Um, so that that's, you know, it's, it's one of the ironies that comics were considered, oh, well, that's for kids and, and, mm -hmm. and all that. I, you know, that, that's, the easy, that's the easy dismissal that I saw a lot in the art world until they went, oops, wait a minute. Um, graphic novels are like perhaps the most, uh, well, you know, for bookstores, they, they became the number one best-selling thing and for publishers too. And having been around for a good you know, section of time where that wasn't the case, where bringing a graphic novel to a publisher, they looked at you like you, you know, had brought in a, a dirty diaper. Um, and, you know, it was, it was just really, and this, you know, same people ended up publishing my work um, later. So, you know, it's a, one of those things, which, right. you know, I mean, I, I'm glad I was alive to experience that. A lot of the artists who, you know, were doing that, you know, were Eisner maybe was one that, you know, he, he stuck around long enough to coin the term graphic novel and, and, you know, get to experience some success in that area. But you know, there were a lot of people doing amazing work that just barely did that. I mean, somebody like Harvey Kurtzman, creator of MAD, he was, he did all sorts of graphic novel things and was trying to get people to recognize that this was an, it could be an adult form and was absolutely blocked in many ways. And obviously no doubt to his, you know, deepest frustrations. Um, but to get to the political aspect of it, there is, well, virtually there's nothing you can't do with comics, of course, but in many ways with cartooning, you know, comic books, but also editorial cartoons and all that. And I also, part of having a career is, and really this is the result of my own interests. I range around. So I do gag cartoons. I do editorial cartoons, illustration comic books and graphic novels and you know that and actually it's it's not because just because i'm trying to have a you know make a living but also because all of those are really interesting to me and have always been areas that are are like vibrant and i want to try i mean i i think that maybe relates to my inability to land on one style is also my my desire to try you know, and and the same thing is true in my graphic novels. I I've done autobiography. I've done tons of fiction, uh, adaptations. Uh, you know, biographies. You know, you name that area. But it's really just coming from like I. The form is so wide open, and it's so capable of doing all those things that something will pique my interest, and I'll be like, oh yeah, I want to I want to try that area. And then it's like refreshed. Um, I had a moment where I just suddenly found myself like I have a buildup of gag cartoon ideas and I started pitching to the New Yorker and and I had pitched to them over the years. It was one of the first places that I pitched when I was, you know, probably still in art school and, you know, with limited success. And it was, wasn't until the 90s that I, I sold them some things. But then I do like a run of pitching to them sell one cartoon and then pitch to him for six months without selling anything and give up. 
And then I came back to it leading up actually, as it turned out to uh, the, the uh, um, 2016 election. And gag cartoons seemed appropriate to address the insanity of Trump coming up. And that led into more, you know, editorial cartoons. And though a lot of, a lot of what I was doing ended up run, making it to the New Yorker. And um, I was able to, you know, sort of straddle a gag cartoon and a, you know, editorial political cartoon in the same breath because um, they do crisscross a lot. Um, but it's it's an ideal form because you can play with irony. You can show one thing in the image and have the text say something else that contradicts it. There's so many different ways. And also when you get into the level of insanity that we have been at for a while, that mm-hmm. cartooning is a really good form to, it, it's an immediate form, first of all. You can go like read something in the newspaper and draw something about it and get it out. I mean, especially, you know, with the internet, you can have it posted if nothing else, but pitch it around to the, you know, well, three places maybe that you can find. It's a limited market, granted, but I can still get my work out. Uh, and I feel even though it's, you know, it's one of those things. I'm, I'm, I'm always feeling depressed by how ineffectual it all seems to be in terms of um, I, I co-founded the magazine World War Three Illustrated when I was in art school with with Seth, my friend from Cleveland. And we, um, you know, we've been doing it now. A new issue is coming out next month. That's our 43rd year. Uh, the secret to our success. Uh, and I'm not sure this is a business model, but no one's ever been paid. But we end up putting money into it to make it run some of the time. Um, but it's been an outlet for maybe longer form pieces that are, are talking about political issues. And it was our response to the fact that the underground comics movement had died and there was no outlet for this kind of, for the comics that I was reading that really inspired me, you know, comics like Slow Death um, and, um, you know, some of the horror comics, but, you know, what, what Crumb was doing, which a lot of it, you know, there was, you know, sex and drugs, but there was a lot of politics in, in that as well, yeah. despite its nature or more, you know, adamantly so and um you know those were you know that that mishmash of things i wanted to do the same thing and having done a fanzine we we were like you know we don't have to wait around for somebody to give us permission we can self-publish and and do that and here we are and there's you know maybe 30 people that are involved in the magazine rotating editorial board different people come in who basically have the same sentiment which is that we feel absolutely desperate to talk about what the fuck is going on that's this horrifying um uh shit show of uh of insane lies and uh uh destruction of the planet and that seems like a worthy topic for comics mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean that's um <clears throat> the power of literature to to comment and to kind of draw attention and say look at these things that are happening um, you know, and that music does that, you know, I, I mean, the things that I grew up on that made me want to do what I ended up doing, it, it's other artists, you know, doing that, listening to, to certain kinds of music that was, you know, um, radical and uh, and also incredibly nurturing and inspiring to like, yeah, you know, get out there in the street. Yeah, don't, you know, let let be crushed by these horrific systems. Um, and, you know, underground comics were loaded with that. 
and that growing up uh, through the Vietnam era and the hippie era, sadly I was hadn't hit puberty when Summer of Love was happening. You know, Shadang always felt like my generation was always like just arriving at the beach in time for the uh, medical waste to wash up. I was like, ah, we were almost there. I could have, but um, but um, I managed to do enough drugs to fill in the blank, I think, and uh, and associate with that that period. And also, you know, a lot of that, I just be I believe in in what what those movements were about. The hippie movement and all, which often gets denigrated, is just sort of like this. You know, it, it was just, it was a fallacy. I really think that um, that's, that has been promoted, in many ways that's been promoted, that these things don't move the needle. And I, I, I have to believe that they do. And I, and I still continue doing what I do out of a sense of, yeah, well, it, it, it changed my life for the better. Um, oh, and and uh, um, that, that that's a torch worth carrying. Yeah, I was I was gonna say something about kernels of truth and satire, but I think it's more like kernels doesn't do it. It's more like grenades of truth that you can find in satire sometimes, I think, that speak uh, so powerfully. Yeah, I mean, even if it just blows up something in your mind and makes you go like, oh, wait a minute, wow, they're screwing us every time we turn around. Yep. You know, that person's <laughs> lying to you and they, you know, they they uh are the institution that's supposed to be telling the truth and I mean, Mad Magazine did that for me in a big way, of course. It's, it's like, a, you know, I learned a lot about the possibilities of comics speaking truth to power through Mad and with humor. And that's one of the things that also happily stuck with me. I mean, I think there is artwork by a lot of great artists that is just, you know, it's a punch in the face and it, there's nothing funny about it. And that can work, too. But I really do love the uh, sugar-coated uh um, you know, love with the same punch, but you, you're laughing and then you're like, wait a minute, you know, that rattled my brain in the, in a good way. So, you know, that, that's, that's another one of those, um, you know, it's, it, and again, I think it's an aspect of art and comics that can really do that. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so as we come up to our last couple of minutes, um, and kind of the the end of the episode. I know you said you have World War Three coming, uh, the ongoing <laughs> book like series. That sounds, yeah. but <laughs> true, true. A new issue, just World a new issue. Let me yeah, say that. Been, you know, it's. I think it's issue fifty three. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh. Well, so in reference, what what I was alluding to earlier. So the last three years, I've been working on a book called Intersects. That is. Um, uh, history of insects and the people who studied them in the past um, as a, uh, it'll be a couple hundred page graphic novel. It'll take me four years to complete it and a lot, huge amount of research. And I'm, another beautiful thing is I've connected with entomologists, like the top entomologists studying bees and cicadas and dragonflies from the Natural History Museum here, say, and I've gotten made friends with them and they've opened up their collections and I've gotten to photograph things. So I have great reference. Um, I spent a year, uh, I got a fellowship at the New York public library and that's where I started this project. And the whole um, story takes place inside the library. And it happened that COVID had hit. And when I got this fellowship, 
normally it would have been a crowded library and all that, and it was empty. And it, it inspired the notion of like, oh, these empty halls of the library could be a perfect place for the insects to congregate and check out books and, and exhibitions about their history. And then humans are gone and uh, the insects are telling their own story and they're actually you know talking and and all that. Um, so, and, and I'm, uh, you know, here I am in my third year on the book and I feel like it's so exciting to work on it. Like, and there's, I have no slowing down and that's the, that combo passion thing colliding and because of what's going on with insects which is there's an insect apocalypse in fact happening and there's a huge die-off and and i'd like to think that people are coming around to recognizing the importance of of insects of all stripes you know you, you wouldn't have chocolate without a certain kind of fly um the noceums in fact that's biting oh, wow. it. yeah they pollinate chocolate with, with cacao um and it's a, there's a long list of things like that but grocery stores would be empty if it weren't for insects there'd be uh you know bodies and waste everywhere if it weren't for flies and dung beetles and all these fabulous creatures um so i'm um i'm i'm been knee deep in that and i have another year to go happily i'm not actually in any rush for it to be over although i in a year it will be it'll be good timing and, and that's going to come out in uh, uh may of 2025 so it's got a little distance to go um I do a weekly strip for Charlie Hebdo, which is the French um, magazine where uh, 12 cartoonists were uh, assassinated by, uh, you know, insane uh, religious fanatics back in, uh, in 2015. Um, mm -hmm. I, it's, I do a wordless comic on the environment for, for them. And, um, and I'm also um, syndicated through uh, Kegel uh, uh, cartoons uh, also, which is also political, uh, cartoons.com. Um, anyway, you know, and, and I'm going to be teaching at Harvard in the fall. Oh, wow. Lots of things, lots yes. of things to come. Wow. Well, well, thank you in the midst of all of that for taking time to talk with me and, and share about your work and the, the complexity of comics. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.